0: Dr Sashis is a prolific author, eloquent orator, accomplished politician and former international civil servant. Currently a second term Lok Sabha MP and chairman of the Parliamentary Standing Committee on External Affairs. He has previously served as the Minister of State for Human Resource Development and Minister of State for External Affairs in the Government of India. Born in London in 1956, Dr. Thoreau was educated in India and the United States, completing a PhD in 1978 at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy. In 1998, the World Economic Forum, Dadas, named him a Global Leader of Tomorrow. He is also a recipient of several awards that include a Commonwealth Writers' Prize and India's highest honour for overseas national. During his nearly three-decade-long prior career, at the United Nations. He served as a peacekeeper, a refugee worker, and administrator at the highest levels, serving as the Under Secretary General for <coughs> Kofi Annan's leadership of the organization. Dr. Thoreau is also an award-winning author of works of both fiction as well as non-fiction, including the Great Indian Novel. His latest book, his 16th book, An Inglorious Empire, an account of the British in India, will be the focus of the event, which in fact evolved from a speech he gave here at Oxford University. In May 2015, Dr. Thoreau won the Oxford Union debate for his side on the proposition, Britain owes reparations to her former colonies, with a characteristically impassioned and precisely argued speech. Months later, once the speech was posted <coughs> online, the video went viral across several social media platforms. This book is an extension of the Oxford Union speech. We look forward to hearing more from the book today. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you very much, Ashif, for uh, joining us today. Um, We had the honor and pleasure to host you uh, uh, just over a year ago uh, before your Oxford Union speech. Uh, And as you see, um, students are never tired. Uh, to hear Shashi Tharoor. Uh, So, what I thought we'd do is have a little conversation about your book, copies of which are available for sale outside. Uh, So, after the event, please do buy one. Um, It is literally flying off the shelves, uh, sold out in India, 12th edition already, I I understand, in only a few months. Uh, It's selling very fast here as well. I happen to know from two events yesterday. Um, Now, Shashi, I imagine, will tell us something about his book uh, by way of our our conversation. And I'd like to start off with um, asking you about how and why do you think it is that Indians, not only now, not only perhaps as a result of neglect or forgetfulness, seem not to be so perturbed by the history of the Raj. Uh, Even so great an enemy of the Raj as Mahatma Gandhi um, was somewhat dismissive of the importance of Britain, uh, though he was fully cognizant of the damages that the empire had done India. Uh, as you know, in Hind Swaraj, his tract from 1909, he says, uh, Britain, England, has not taken India away from us. We have given it to them. And of course, in saying this, he's claiming agency for Indians, and he's also launching a critique of the idea of interest itself, Uh, instead of defining nationalism as a form of self-interest. He's saying, no, actually, interest is something that can just as well compel us to acquiesce uh, for pecuniary gains uh, to colonialism. So there is something, I think, conceptually quite sophisticated about this relative disinterest in blaming Britain. I wonder if you might say something about that, and if your book addresses it in any way.
2: No, the book doesn't really address it, but you're right. It's an, it's an implicit question that, that comes up when we talk about this period, because obviously Mahatma Gandhi himself um, spoke of British rule in India as a sin in that very moral vocabulary he liked to use. Um, but, you know, the, the whole philo- philosophy, if you like, the Hindu idea that he had imbibed was that you must hate the sin but not the sinner. And once the sin was over, once the British were no longer ruling, with their flag flying over Delhi, then it was not your job to hate the sinner. In fact, there is an anecdote, possibly apocryphal, though I heard it from a very reputable source, um, that Nehru, uh, visiting England some years after independence, was asked by Churchill how it was that he had no bitter, bitterness and rancor after having been jailed for ten years of his life by Churchill by the by the by the Brits. And Nehru is said to have replied, I was taught by a great man namely Mahatma Gandhi never to fear and never to hate, which to some degree sums up the attitude that was taken on by the Indian leadership. But of course, when beyond that, the Indian leadership uh, essentially took over the reins of the British colonial state as a whole. Uh, It converted the Imperial Civil Service into the Indian Administrative Service. It kept the British Indian Army, amazingly enough, the Indians who had taken up arms against the British on behalf of the Indian National Army of Bose, were never reintegrated into the Indian um, military. Two of them actually went on to rise in Indian politics in the Congress party. One became a minister, Shanawas Khan, one became the Speaker of Parliament, G.S. Dillon, but nobody was allowed to come back into the army. So uh, the, the, note, the, the idea that you been untrue to your salt and you will not be taken in again uh, in a sense, was a curious continuation of the colonial uh, value system and institutional system. Then you've got the um, the persistence, if you like, of all the institutional structures from uh, official government residences to, uh, to 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 ministries and ways of governing the parliamentary system, the works. Uh, so, in many ways, um, this successor state never really sought an accounting of the past, even though. Um, obviously, the nationalist movement had incorporated into it extensive critiques of, of uh, British colonialism. Um, the original uh, analyses of the colonial extractions of resources from India, uh, the drain theory, and so on, had already taken place in the 19th <coughs> century, the other by Naoroji, most famously in his Poverty and Un British Rule in India. Uh, Dutt, Nehru himself and the discovery of India many others had written uh, about uh, colonial exactions but it was almost as if the slate had been wiped clean at midnight on the 15th of August 1947 perhaps there is also a cultural inclination to forgive and forget we are not a nation of long lived blood feuds unlike say some of the fierce tribes of the northwest now in Pakistan uh, there, there aren't too many such Stories in India. Um, and, and my book essentially says to Indians, of course you must forgive, but you must not forget. And I often find myself saying to young people, if you don't know where you've come from, how will you appreciate where you're going? Uh, and that's why, just as you want to know a little bit about your parents or your grandparents, some of your, your ancestral past, similarly, you as a collective society have an obligation to know something about your recent. Historical past, so it's in that spirit that I've tried to administer that corrective Mm. in this book.
1: Sticking with Gandhi just for a while um, and dwelling on the question of the how peculiar the British Empire was, or was it? You know, Gandhi himself famously said that it was modernity or what he called modern civilization that was the culprit here, and that rather than the British having invented it, it was something that took charge, literally possessed the British and hollowed them out, left them empty and moved on somewhere else. Uh, so I wonder if, if what you're writing about in your book, though obviously it is about the British Empire, but can you say something about how, how much more expansive
2: the idea and fact of colonialism was? Sure, I mean, Gandhiji of course said a lot of things. He also said famously, remember when asked by a journalist, what do you think of Western civilization? He famously responded, I think it would be a good idea. Uh, so, Uh, what what did he mean by civilization, how does it apply to uh, to what um, what, what the the British were bringing into India, I mean, in in many ways uh, is a larger subject of inquiry and debate. But having said all of that, the notion of a civilizational idea taking over another civilization actually came quite late. Mm -hmm. Uh, in the in the British presence and it, it really, I would argue was never consciously articulated in any significant way until the second half of the 19th century yes I know about the Bengal Renaissance and some of the reformism that was catalyzed by, by the British presence but the British never really saw themselves as, um, as, as, as here to change Indian society uh, the East India Company was here for the money and that was all they were interested in was how to profit from their presence here And um, uh, unlike say the Portuguese and the Spanish who when they went out to colonize, took the missionaries and the priests and the inquisitors with them. The British, uh, the first British bishop only arrived in India in 1820. I mean, you know, or the late 1810s anyway. I mean, it it just wasn't a big thing for them. It was really later after the mutiny in particular, or what they call the Mutiny, the Indian Revolt of 1857, that the ex post facto need to justify their presence in India which had obviously been so emphatically rejected by so many, uh, came about and they started talking about things like the, the civilizing mission and the, uh, the need to, to sort of uh, bring enlightenment to what Kipling called the lesser breeds without the law and so, and so on and so forth. So a lot of what today are cited as the great benefits of British rule were in my view largely afterthoughts. And, and so it's difficult I've discussed some of this in the book, not extensively, but um, um, uh, uh, some of the the tropes you see in, in Victorian writing about India in the late 19th century. This whole notion of the uh, of the British Empire as some sort of extended Victorian family gathered around the drawing room, you know, with this Queen Empress sitting in the big armchair and the the little sort of flock around her. I and mean, this kind of imagery uh, really came about quite seriously. Uh, I think really only in the later part of the 19th century. And how sincere was it? How much of it was rationalization? Um, because there is just so much material out there, and I read quite manically a lot of uh, books and articles published in the late 19th, early 20th century, one gets a sense of people uh, trying to justify it. But as you know, at the same time behind closed doors, there was a lot of brutal honesty amongst the English about what they were really up to. So. Uh, to take one example, when Queen Victoria in her proclamation of 1858 says that Indians must be associated with the administration of the empire um, and thereby throws open the ICS examinations to Indians. Uh, What happens in theory and what happens in practice is a huge gulf, because when Indians actually ace the examinations and get in, they're treated in the most appalling way. Either they're sought to be marked down or then uh, Tremendously harassed upon their entry to the service, even drummed out of the service, in some cases, uh, a man like Surindranath Danerjee who was later described by a British journalist, Henry Nevinson of the Sunday Times, as the greatest English language, greatest orator in the English language in the world after Gladstone. This man comes into the civil service and within a very, very short while is is kicked out on uh, for a minor administrative infraction that certainly wouldn't have earned an englishman a reprimand and 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 the fact is that uh, uh, if the british were sincere in their professions of sort of civilizing the natives and assimilating them into the running of the empire um, this is precisely the kind of man they should have co-opted instead of which they drove him out Um, man they didn't uh, drive out not to go ended up, as you know, uh, uh, with the most inconsequential of careers, the first Indian to get to the ICS, uh, and retired eventually as a judge in the tiny provincial Maharashtrian town of Satara, which is not exactly the kind of career that his intellect and and, and education qualified him for, and so on and so forth. The first significant Indian judge was Justice Syed Mahmood of the Allahabad High Court, um, who actually came in a completely convinced Anglophile, having studied law in Britain, returned convinced of the civilizing benefits of British law and so on, and uh, was humiliated pretty much day after day on the bench by his own Chief Justice and his own peers. Um, ended up um, driving himself to drink and resignation from from the court. Um, there's a, a, an, an amazingly revealing memoir by a retired veteran ICS officer in 1911, Fielding Hall, um, who wrote about this entire question of Indians coming into the service. Uh, And he tells the story. Mind you, he's fairly liberal, enlightened and humane for English administrators Mm -hmm. of his time, but um, unconsciously or or, or, also unselfconsciously racist uh, in everything he says about mean, There's this this racist paternalism to to his whole idea. Uh, and, And he talks precisely about the question of Victoria wanting to admit Indians into the Empire and he says um, that it was completely wrong because the government of India must by definition be English completely unaware of the you know the contradiction in those very terms Uh, and and he tells the story of one of the early entrants a Chetty Mr Chetty he doesn't remember the first name uh, who uh, studied and obviously the son of a wealthy southern family went off and studied in Harrow and Cambridge and I think Oxford as well, uh, came, came back having aced the examination and stopped the civil services, came in expecting to have this glorious career that his education had equipped him for. Of course in England he had never suffered any particular consciousness of discrimination, but once he came back to India, um, it was humiliation after humiliation uh, that encountered him. Uh, and, and the clincher was when he was posted to a district and uh, discovered that all the real decisions were actually made uh, over glasses of whiskey at the club, where the district magistrate, the chief policeman, the top business people, everybody, every white in the district belonged. For when he applied to join the club, he was blackballed because he was not white. And eventually, says Fielding old Chet, he shot himself. Um, and you know, this is the—I mean, I, I'm, I'm sorry—it sounds cynical, but Lytton, for example, wrote a memorandum to London in 1877, saying, "Of course, we cannot give Indians any real responsibility." Uh, I've I've quoted the exact words of the memo uh, in the the book. So I take this entire talk of the civilizing mission, the attempt to impart British culture, values, legal principles, ethos, ethics, whatever, into India as complete cant uh, and hypocrisy. I don't think it was ever sincere. Um, And I think it consisted essentially of an ex post facto rationalization for the tyranny of foreign rule uh, over an alien people. I,
1: you know, your book tells a great deal about and without the cant and the hypocrisy uh, about what the British did to India. But I'm also interested in what colonialism did to the British. And by that I don't mean any trauma that they might have suffered. But even if you take uh, the work of Samalakashi Ashish Nandi in Delhi, uh, who argues that in the 19th century what you have happening is a kind of overt masculinization of British culture, and he ties the trial of Oscar Wilde, for instance, in London, uh, uh, and the, and the proscription of different forms of uh, moral and sexual being to the, uh, the imperative of the British to actually stand as true masculine selves before indians uh, do you think there's anything in it is there oh yes there is i
2: quote or, a speech yes. that Curzon made right here at oxford university when he was viceroy of india explicitly talking about this masculine mission to sort of uh, conquer the untamed beasts uh, and the, the the greatest option available to a young graduate was to go out and sort of colonize the world and sort of rule it and, and yeah this was very much part of I mean this is if you read the the, the the novels that were popular Particularly among schoolboys in the in the late nineteenth century, for example, uh, very much part of this entire thing and uh, Kipling, Storkey and company and this sort of mm. stuff. I mean, this is this is uh, uh, very much um, uh, part of the self-definition of the Empire. G. A. E. Henty mm. um, hugely popular in those days and writing precisely these these masculine novels of colonial adventure and daring do. So yes, I don't disagree with that, but. Uh, don't expect me to feel sorry for them for having had to endure this period of, uh, <laughs> of overt uh, transformation um, while they were busy oppressing the rest of us. I I still remember seeing um, Hollywood movies of the 1930s about the British Empire, like Ganga Din and the lives of the Bengal dancers and so on, and wondering why on earth the bad guys kept winning at the end. Anyway. <laughs>
1: no, I suppose the thing is to... In a way, I think your, your book is well placed to make this argument, uh, to cut through the clichés of a blame game and to show the British in this case how they themselves were shaped by the empire, that it wasn't simply some peripheral part of their history and that it's not simply something they did to others, but they themselves are the products of it uh, in a way more meaningful than
2: simply having gained from it monetarily. <coughs> Sure, and, and literally so, because of course today's British people are not only the White Britons. I mean, there's that wonderful photograph, I haven't forgotten about a, uh, a protest, a counter-protest by an immigrant uh, a group here somewhere in London a few years ago. The people holding up signs saying, we are here because you were there. Yeah. I mean, history, <laughs> history does come back and, 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 and by Britain, and it has transformed uh, the nature of Britain, the very fact that you've got all these Indian restaurants around. A, you know, Indian curry houses, it is said, employ more people in Britain today than the iron and steel, shipbuilding and coal mining industries combined so the empire can strike back.
0: <laughs>
1: in a way, your, your book comes at exactly the right time. Uh, you know, we are in a world, in a post-Brexit world, in which there's a curious return to the empire by way of the Commonwealth. So it reminds me, of course, In the days when Margaret Thatcher was still dilly-dallying about Britain's entry into the common market, she would try to convince herself and others that no, of course, Britain needs to turn towards the commonwealth. And it was unrealistic at the time because the economies weren't matched up in any sense. Now they are slightly more matched up. Uh, But that this thought has come back post-Brexit is is absolutely (coughs) fascinating. So I'm just wondering how you think the return of empire in this sense um, has meaning in terms
2: of the long durée
1: that you trace.
2: <coughs> well, I, I mentioned towards the end of the book when I'm trying to look at the messy afterlife of colonialism, uh, a YouGov poll that I saw. I don't think it's been repeated since, in 2014, which asked the British public about empire. 59% said they'd love to have an empire. Uh, 59% of today's Brits. Only I mean, 19% were even aware of the atrocities uh, committed in the name of the empire. So, uh, partly historical amnesia is to blame. Um, partly the deliberate revisionism of historians like Neil Ferguson, who uh, uh, sort of cheerfully called the British Empire a jolly good thing with capital letters, um, because it supposedly laid the foundations of today's globalization around the world. Uh, the likes of Andrew Roberts, Lawrence <coughs> James, so many others have written these things, and and they've gone unchallenged in popular history. I know there's serious scholarship in lots of places that would. Give the light to all of this, and I have delved into some of it and quoted some of it in my book. But, um, but in, in, in popular perceptions, I think all that most Britons see of the empire are these gauzy, romanticised soap operas on television in you know, Indian summers and in the far pavilions and all that stuff. And I don't think they're really conscious of uh, of anything but the roast interview, if they're conscious at all. Mm. When my book came out in India, there was an article in the Guardian by a Pakistani journalist saying she'd raised two kids in London. They'd gone to Westminster and um, they hadn't, and they'd majored in history, whatever the term is, but they had never learned a line of colonial history. Uh, it isn't taught, it's just there in the background. I mean, uh, I'm one of those that argue you can't read Jane Mansfield without being aware that the lifestyle, I mean, uh, what am I saying, Jane Austen, <laughs> Mansfield Park, and others, without being aware that the lifestyle she describes is financed by the proceedings of Caribbean sugar plantations and slavery. Uh, that, that the, 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 uh, half the buildings in London would not have been built without money being drained annually uh, out, of, out, of, out of India. There's a, a line of Walpole, I quote, sort of riding down one of the streets of London and describing each house as having been built by a robber baron from, uh, from mm-hmm. his uh, uh, profits made in the East India Company. Um, the, the, English, the English people are largely unaware of all. Uh, and, and, and it's it, it's in to some degree i think incumbent upon us now to sort of um teach this whole i mean yes uh, the glories of empire are celebrated in all sorts of pop culture but i think the inglorious aspects of it uh, have to be admitted and confronted by today's britons of all colors and, and all races it's part of your history here i mean in a way uh, your book of course makes that valiant attempt.
1: And I, success, I think, shows us all uh, how...
2: It's too early to celebrate success, I'm afraid. Well, we haven't seen a single review yet, so when they start coming, <laughs> I'm braced for a backlash. But, uh, but anyway. It's That's,
1: in a way, just as well, because yeah. then an argument begins. A yeah. real argument will begin. But the reception you received here today, yesterday in London, uh, and in, in the many other places you're speaking, surely some indication to say nothing about the enormous popularity of the book uh, and indeed your speech at the Union in India perhaps you could tell us something about that what how would you account for the Indian reception
2: of this? It, it's 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 a bit difficult experiment. Sunit already mentioned this this thing went viral after I spoke at Oxford here having addressed Faisal students a little more seriously in the morning I went off and did this slightly light-hearted but at the same time fairly passionate take down of the British Empire at the Oxford Union, and then went away, and a month later, they posted it on YouTube, and the blessed thing went viral. And to this day, almost a year and a half later, I have people coming up to me in India at all sorts of public places, telling me how much they loved that speech, which surprised me at various levels, including the very simple level that I thought everybody knew this stuff already, because I'd been <laughs> holding these beliefs since I was at high school studying history. So either they're not paying attention in class anymore, or we're just not teaching history very well. Uh, In our schoolrooms, and and um, and I think that partly um, accounts for this this need to to be aware of something which I would have thought uh, what the Americans would call nationalism 101 uh, was implicit in every Indian's consciousness. Um, The the second thing that uh, I'm curious about is whether it also feeds into a slightly more capacious version of nationalism as an answer to the narrower, more sectarian nationalism being preached by those in power in India today. Uh, I have long argued, in fact, I was telling some students today that um, uh, just after our rather humiliating election defeat in May of 2014, I wrote a memo (coughs) of the Congress leadership which was published in India today. You can still find it on Google. saying something like eight ways forward for the Congress, or so nine ways forward for the Congress. I can't remember the exact number. And one of the points I made there was, do not cede nationalism to the BJP. Uh, our party, you know, not just fought for India's freedom, but has a, an inclusive view of nationalism, which we must affirm and celebrate. Um, and that's been part of my self-appointed mission, as it were, in the public discourse. Uh, whereas we instead are seeing the dominance of, of a very narrow-minded nationalism, that seeks to disenfranchise dissenters, that seeks to decry as anti-national any dissenting uh, view from the dominant national discourse. And I think is therefore profoundly against the kinds of values and principles for which the nationalist movement actually fought when it fought for our freedom. So I think it's important to articulate this alternative and I'm trying to do that. Mm.
1: No, yeah, that, I think that is a very important point indeed. And a, a final question before we open up uh, to the audience—I'm sure uh, they're very eager to engage with you directly. You know, today the way in which empire seems to function, or the memory of it, uh, is no longer international so much. So, you know, Britain and India might have the best of relations. That's fine, but it's what you said in one of your previous answers that is more uh, at issue. It's those who are from there, who are here. It's minority groups, uh, ethnic and other minorities, who often become the targets. Uh, And so it's, it's now about the domestic space. In a curious way, there seems to have been a reversal so that you have, not just in Britain, in fact, not so much in Britain, but in many European countries, a strange sense that they are being colonized by the former empire. I don't mean simply economically with Tata immigration, etc. Immigration and cultural uh, assertion. And it's a well-known story because we used it ourselves with far more justice uh, from the 19th century onwards. So it's this strange um, imitation of the language
2: of victimization without
1: perhaps its reality.
2: Very well said. I'm not sure I can add to that. It really is, is, is a superb insight and I think you're quite right. I and mean, It's very much part of the the discourse in countries like Britain, uh, France um, uh, and in a curious way because they're never part of empire. Some of the Scandinavian countries that have mm. been receiving um, refugees from from the uh, Muslim world uh, are now articulating similar things, they're very much mm. sort of fringe minority parties that are doing so, but that kind of language is coming back uh, and the, the meaning of sort of colonization is changing. Uh, but of course these people are here to stay mm. and uh, and the ones... Uh, who came from Britain to India really were there to loot. Uh, forgive me for being so blunt. Uh, they, they, they weren't interested in assimilation into India. And even if generations served, home was always here and not there. So um, I think there is a, there is a difference in, in, the, in the kinds of colonizations we're talking about. Uh, and certainly with the British, unlike would say the French, assimilation was never a priority. Uh, neither cultural, even, even uh, Macaulay's minute was only about creating a small narrow class of interpreters mm-hmm. between the rulers and the ruled. It was not about transforming the entire society. Um, and and uh, the British at no point were interested in spending the kind of money it would have taken to educate mm-hmm. Indians in the ways uh, of, of Britain. Um, in fact, as late as 1930, Will Durant, the American historian pointed out that the entire education budget of British India at uh, all levels of schooling, college, university, the works, put together wouldn't account for half the high school budget of the state of New York. Uh, and they, they just weren't interested in spending money to transform India. So it was a, a curious kind of colonization. It was really the minimum they could do to justify and maintain their presence while extracting resources and sending it back to England as much as possible, um, which is very different from... Um, if you like what they're now experiencing which is people coming here to live, to stay to become part of the fabric of the society so shifting meanings as well as colors of colonialization.
1: Yes, but it it shows you how (laughs) the spectre of empire continues to haunt these nation states in a way that it doesn't haunt India, that's the interesting in your account Uh, Yes, no it doesn't
2: as I said there's there's this very great readiness to forgive and forget Mm. which um uh, and I, I certainly um, um, was struck by that 59% in the YouGov poll, but I, I, I wonder if a, sort of the obvious poll were held in India, what sort of answers we'd get, yeah. because uh, there are enough people frustrated, if you like, with the inadequacies of Indian governments today, who would be prepared to say, in moments of both ignorance and rashness, that they would like they were better off under the Brits mm. or the country but have been better off under the Brits. And it's partly to open their eyes too mm. that mm. I've tried to set the record straight with.